Truman Capote once wrote, I don't care what anybody says about me, as long as it isn't true. But more times than not, it's the hidden truths that turn out to be the most interesting. I'm Jeffrey Davies, your host for As Long As It Isn't True, a literary podcast delving into some of literature's biggest scandals and controversies, both those well-known and those less remembered. Episode 1, Friends with the Monster. I am about as tall as a shotgun and just as nasty. These were the words that American author Truman Capote once used to describe himself. A storyteller from the day he was born until the day he died, Truman most likely intended this description as a not-so-humble brag. But what would transpire in the second half of his literary career would make this statement work very much against him. Truman Capote is best remembered in the pop culture of today for penning the source materials for the highly successful films Breakfast at Tiffany's, and In Cold Blood. He wrote numerous other stories and published collections until his death in 1984. But it would be the one novel he never quite finished that would drive him into an early grave. This is a story of high society outrage and literary scandal. One that raises more questions than answers, or fewer answered prayers than unanswered ones, if you will. Society's sacred monsters at the top have been in a state of shock, read the words of an article from New York Magazine titled, Truman Capote in Hot Water. It was written by journalist Liz Smith and appeared in the February 1976 edition. Never have you heard such a gnashing of teeth, such cries of revenge, such shouts of betrayal, and such screams of outrage. She was referring, of course, to the publication of a certain short story by Truman in Esquire magazine the previous November. It was called La Cote Basque, 1965, said to be a chapter from his forthcoming magnum opus, a novel called Answered Prayers. Let them go ahead and make me a monster, Truman told Smith. There are no secrets. The controversy erupted after the story's publication in Esquire because its subject matter was one of the author had practically known best, his swans. These were high society women whom Truman had befriended. He believed them to be human works of art that went unappreciated by the men in their lives, who saw them as trophies. This group of Manhattan socialites, composed primarily of Babe Paley, Slim Keith, Gloria Guinness, Morella Agnelli, CZ Guest, and Lee Radziwill, loved Truman almost as much as he loved them. But that all changed quickly and starkly when he took the intimate details of both their personal lives and those of their friends, shared with him at elite uptown lunches, and published it for the world to see. Almost all of them shunned him immediately thereafter and never spoke to him again. But the publication of La Cote Basque should not have been the shock and awe that it was. For years, Truman had told anyone who would listen that he was writing the greatest novel of his time. It was to be called Answered Prayers, and if all goes well, I think it will answer mine, he told Random House. The title was attributed to a quote from St. Teresa of Avila, there are more tears shed over answered prayers than over unanswered ones. However, there is no evidence to support that St. Teresa ever spoke these words. 
through a modern lens, it's quite simple to deduce that what Truman was already hailing his latest literary masterpiece would draw inspiration from the women with which he so frequently surrounded himself. According to Lawrence Lemer, author of the book Capote's Women, Truman was adamant that Answered Prayers would be his masterpiece, one that would finally earn him his place in the upper-class literary culture to which he constantly aspired. But aside from a handful of chapters that appeared in magazines throughout the 1970s, the book never materialized. Was it his crumbling social reputation as a result of La Cote Basque? Was it his increasing dependence on drugs and alcohol? Did the best work of Truman Capote's career ever even exist to begin with? Truman was fascinated by the high society women of magical cities like New York from the time he was a child. It was most likely in his blood, since his mother, Lily May, was known to leave her son to be looked after by relatives while she fled their small Alabama town for New York City to become somebody. Or at least somebody who would make it onto page six in time for Monday morning. But it wouldn't be long before Lily May, or Nina as she called herself in New York, to turn up back in Monroeville, Alabama crying to her son over her broken heart. Dressed in fabulous fabrics and scents she couldn't afford, Lily May would hug Truman and apologize for her absences. But it would be only a few days later when she would disappear again, seeking fulfillment from men in Manhattan penthouses. Truman's own high society aspirations were in no doubt inspired by his mother, even though his relationship with her was certainly not a happy one. Following the large success of his debut novel, Other Voices, Other Rooms, in the late 1940s, Truman began his quest for the literary fame and stardom he dreamed of since childhood, and he knew it was the swans that would help him get it. Truman was closest with Babe Paley, a prominent Manhattan socialite married to the head of CBS, William S. Paley. Although she's often thought to have been the source material for the character of Holly Golightly in his novella, Breakfast at Tiffany's, that character was most likely based off of Nina, also known as his mother. But that doesn't mean Truman wasn't already starting to dream up a creative work inspired by his friendship with Babe and the other swans. Though he was writing the success of Breakfast at Tiffany's and then the grandfather of the nonfiction novel, In Cold Blood, throughout most of the 60s, Truman had been storing the basis for what would become answered prayers in the back of his mind long before then but he was always terrified of being exposed for the fraud he secretly believed himself to be, despite his literary triumphs. It was this fear that linked him to one socialite in particular, one who wasn't his friend. Her name was Anne Woodward, who had gained notoriety in the mid-50s for shooting and killing her husband Bill, the heir to the Hanover National Bank fortune, mistaking him for a burglar. The truth was that Truman was most fascinated by socialites like Anne, those who had schemed their way into the upper class, who had devoted their lives to associating with and being noticed by the right people. It was because Truman himself had done the same thing, and maybe that's why they disliked each other so much. Anne even used to refer to him as a little toad in public.
After the universally acclaimed publication of In Cold Blood in the mid-60s, Truman actually had some wealth to speak of and a bit of respect in the literary community. Suddenly, the insecure homosexual from Alabama didn't need to hide behind the fame and fortune of his rich lady friends. He had big money of his own for once in his life. So he figured he should have no problem at all setting out to write the novel he thought himself born to write. On January 5, 1966, Truman signed a contract to write Answered Prayers for Random House, working with editor Joseph Fox, whom he had collaborated with on In Cold Blood. The advance was $25,000, equivalent to over $230,000 in 2023, to be delivered on January 1st, 1968. Still enjoying the widespread praise that In Cold Blood continued to generate, he had only written a handful of chapters for his new novel, and the first deadline came and went. But not everyone bought what Truman was selling, with writers like John Richardson and Gore Vidal questioning the validity of the nonfiction presented in In Cold Blood. Truman had absolutely no respect for the truth, once said Richardson. He felt that as a fiction writer, he had license to say whatever came into his head, as long as it had a surprising point of shape to it or an unexpected twist to its tail. Truman's response to the allegations was concise. Art and truth are not necessarily compatible bedfellows, he told Cosmopolitan magazine. This is why he thought Answered Prayers was the book he was born to write. It would be so easy by comparison, he told reporters. This book was all in his head. In 1969, Random House cancelled their original contract with Truman and offered him a new one, something more advantageous for the author that might compel him to actually deliver something this time. This was a three-book deal with a higher advance of $750,000, equivalent to $6.1 million today, with Answered Prayers due in January 1973. He told Gerald Clark, his friend and later biographer, that the novel will be his principal work. Almost everything in it is true. I have a cast of thousands. The deadline was, unsurprisingly, pushed again to January 1974 and then September, with still nothing to show for it. Truman spent the ensuing years working on other writing that he thought would act as breadcrumbs for his fans and editors. But by 1975, restlessness over answered prayers had quadrupled. So he decided to start publishing excerpts of already finished chapters from the book as a way of showing everyone that he did have something to show for the novel he'd spoken of so highly for nearly a decade. The first excerpt, Mojave, appeared in Esquire in June, originally intended to be the first chapter of Answered Prayers. He later changed his mind, and the chapter is no longer considered part of the book. Since the publication of the first excerpt was so well received, Truman felt emboldened to keep going. He wanted to push the envelope even further, he thought it was the right time, but everything was about to change. When Esquire published La Cote Basque 1965 in November 1975, nothing was ever the same for Truman Capote. Here's the thing you have to know about La Cote Basque. It's vicious and underhanded, but it's also some of Truman's most compelling prose. It was an atmosphere of luxurious exhaustion, like a ripened, shedding rose, while all that waited outside was the failing New York afternoon.
The chapter follows the central protagonist of Answered Prayers, P.B. Jones, a character Truman insisted wasn't him, just someone he knew well. Jones dines with his upper-class friend, Lady Ina Coolberth, at the coveted French restaurant in Manhattan, La Cote Basque. This is the second time she's cancelled, Ina Coolberth continued. She says she has hives, or the Duke has hives, one or the other. Anyway, I've still got a table at Cote Basque, so shall we? Because I do so need someone to talk to, really. And thank God, Jonesy, it can be you. At La Cote Basque, they gossip and share details about the personal lives of the other women they know, a solid precursor to sex in the city. But unlike Carrie Bradshaw, P.B. Jones goes out of his way to paint women based on real-life subjects in a particularly unflattering light. Gloria Vanderbilt experiences character assassination, but nothing seems so cruel as what Truman did to his best friend and his favorite of the swans, Babe Paley. The chapter features a socialite whose husband is sleeping with the governor's wife, something too specific for those close to Babe as not resembling her own marriage. Not only that, but a character named Anne Hopkins appears, someone Truman didn't spend any time disguising. This Anne character had shot her own husband some years ago in what she said was an accident and lost her social standing overnight. Anne Woodward had received an advanced copy of La Cote Basque a month prior to its publication. On October 10, 1975, she committed suicide through cyanide poisoning. Her former mother-in-law, Elsie, famously remarked, Well, that's that. She shot my son, and Truman murdered her. And just like that, Truman Capote's exile commenced. Lady Ina was ordering another bottle of Cristal. Why not? she asked, defiantly replying to my concerned expression. Easy up, Jonesy. You won't have to carry me piggyback. I just feel like it, shattering the day into golden pieces. Now, I thought she's going to tell me what she wants, but doesn't want to tell me. But no, not yet. Instead, would you care to hear a truly vile story, really vomitous? Then look to your left. Countless theories exist as to which character represents which real-life swan in La Cote Basque. Lady Ina is unanimously agreed to be Slim Keith. Lee Rasiwill and her sister Jackie also appear in the story by name, merely as unsuspecting patrons. But upon a rudimentary reading of the story today, the most ruthless and underhanded inclusion is the real-life narrative of Anne Woodward. By the time La Cote Basque was first published in 1975, it had been 20 years since the murder scandal that had brutally exiled Woodward from high society. Although it was surely not forgotten in people's memories, it was no longer the first thing on their minds. That Mrs. Hopkins, a redhead dressed in black, black hat with a veil trim, black Mainbacher suit, black crocodile purse, crocodile shoes. Mrs. Kennedy and her sister had elicited not a murmur, nor had the entrances of Lauren Bacall and Catherine Cornell and Claire Booth Luce. However, Mrs. Hopkins was an autre chose, a sensation to unsettle the suavest Cote Basque client. 
For Truman to drudge it up for everyone to gasp and speculate about once more proved to be particularly painful, especially for Anne. Perhaps it was the ultimate revenge for the times she had called him rude names in public. Anne's story didn't belong to her anymore. It belonged to anyone who would write about it, observed Roseanne Montillo, author of Deliberate Cruelty, Truman Capote, the millionaire's wife, and the murder of the century. She had lost agency over her own character. The reactions among the swans were swift and to the point. Most of them cut off Truman Cold Turkey, never speaking to him again. When the author died in 1984, Slim Key stated that she felt nothing. For me, he had died nine years before. Babe Paley, one of Truman's dearest and most treasured friends, his favorite of the swans, was suffering from terminal lung cancer when Lakote Basque hit newsstands. She stopped taking his calls, and they never made up before her death in 1978. Lee Razuel was among one of the only swans not to ostracize Truman after the story was published. Maybe this was because she was not openly disparaged within his prose but they ended up losing touch as a result of his growing dependence on drugs and alcohol. The only other swan not to cut off Truman was one who does not appear in Lakote Basque, CZ Guest. Everybody knew the man's a professional and they told him those things anyway, she once told a reporter. He's a dear friend of mine, but I wouldn't discuss very private matters with him. I don't even know who those factual people are. She continued to support him in the final years of his life, including by financing an unsuccessful stint in rehab. But it was too late, because Truman was already on a downward spiral. What did they expect? Truman repeatedly asked of the backlash caused by the publication of the most infamous chapter from Answered Prayers. I'm a writer and I use everything. Did all those people think I was there just to entertain them? He hated the idea of being used for his talents, even though he was constantly using his skills as a storyteller to buy his way into high society circles. He had been cut out by the women he had spent most of his professional life trying to befriend. And it most likely hurt so much because it proved to him how unimportant he was in the grand scheme of their lives, since it was so easy for them to disown him. But Truman's growing sense of insecurity and vulnerability was ever-present, always just below the surface. The truth was that he was damaged to the core by his exile, and it undoubtedly contributed to the substance abuse that plagued the remainder of his life. Truman continued working throughout the late 1970s. Two additional chapters from Answered Prayers appeared in Esquire in 1976, Unswilled Monsters and Kate McLeod. He became a frequent guest at a new club called Studio 54, populated by a world of people who had no idea who Babe Paley was. In the preface to his 1980 story collection, Music for Chameleons, Truman admitted to having stopped working on Answered Prayers around 1977. He chalked this up to a creative and personal crisis. A 1978 college tour was largely disastrous, and he had no recollection of a drunken appearance on the Stanley Siegel show.
Jack Dunphy, Truman's longtime partner, said during this period that he looked tired, very, very tired. It's as if he's at a long party and wants to say goodbye, but he can't. Multiple people have claimed to have seen a full manuscript that was said to be answered prayers. Truman's friend Joanne Carson maintained that it definitely existed. He had many, many pages of a manuscript and he started to read them, she said. They were very, very good. He read one chapter, but then someone called and when I went back, he just put them aside and said, I'll read them after dinner. But he never did. You know how that happens. When he died in her home in 1984, Carson admitted that Truman had given her a key to a safety deposit box where he alleged the remaining chapters were hidden, but never indicated where the box was located. Other friends of Truman's, Myron Clement and Joe Pestrosik, also claimed to have been witness to a manuscript and heard stories from the greatest novel that never was. I remember I was at the other end of his couch and he's reading all this from a manuscript, Pestrosik told Vanity Fair. But it occurred to him later that maybe he had just made the whole thing up. He remembered him as such a wonderful storyteller. Later on, however, Petrosik remembers Truman handing him a manuscript to read on a trip from New York to Long Island. I actually had it in my hands, he said. But for all he knew, it could have been a pile of blank paper. Two central theories remain about the ultimate fate of Truman Capote's answered prayers. One is that it never existed to begin with. He wrote the chapters everyone had seen and nothing else due to writer's block and the devastating reaction from his swan. The other is that he had in fact written pages and pages of a manuscript for a novel that did exist at one time. But he burned its unpublished relics in a fit of self-doubt and despondency. Kelly Greenberg Jeffcott, author of the historical fiction novel Swan Song, believes that he had written an entire novel, but that it didn't meet his standards, and he destroyed it. When you've worked 20 years on a book and you've lost your entire social circle, who are essentially your family over it, those aren't standards that are easily met, she said. It had to have been the holy grail of novels to have been worth what he lost. She also maintained that there was a reason it took him so long to accomplish what he wanted to be his greatest work, why he had missed deadlines on it for decades. Biographer Gerald Clark held a similar theory, that answered prayers wasn't the only cause of Truman's ultimate demise. Clark believed that witnessing the execution of the killer in the in-cold blood case permanently damaged Truman's psyche, and he never recovered.
Still one question lingers. Why did he do it? Why did Truman write or publish a story like Lakote Basque, knowing that it might hurt the women he considered himself closest to? Gerald Clark recalled seeing an early draft of the chapter the summer before it appeared in Esquire. He warned him that what Truman was still perceiving as a tale that would rival Marcel Proust or Edith Wharton was nothing more than fictionalized gossipy chatter, the catty whispers overheard at opulent dinner parties. Clark assured Truman that those he had written about would recognize themselves immediately and not be happy. Nah, they're too dumb, was Truman's reply. They won't know who they are. Famous last words. Reading the three known chapters from Answered Prayers today, which were first published posthumously in novel form in 1986, it's easy to see how and why Truman had predicted this to be his magnum opus. He writes openly and frankly in ways that his other work desperately wanted to, but just couldn't. It's definitely more openly queer than any of his other work, even though most of his stories feature queer characters. Despite everything, Truman was a gifted writer his uncivil upbringing in the South, how his mother never loved him and she drank herself to death, was all fodder for a legendary literary career. There's a reason why the culture and certainly his rich friends took notice of him in the first place. But in order to maintain his born-again status in high society, he had to work for it. Truman was a known storyteller, an actor prone to embellishing, likely even a pathological liar. When he dreamed up the premise for Answered Prayers, he believed it would answer all of his own because he wanted it to be the novel where he could finally let his guard down. Where he could be his authentic, catty, unabashedly queer self and not worry about the repercussions. Truman had worked long and hard to earn his place in literary culture. Sadly for him, others didn't see it that way. He loved his swans, but he dared to be seen more as merely their stereotypical gay best friend. Even though barely a fraction of what he promised exists of answered prayers today, it's definitely among his best work, even La Cote Basque. The pain it caused Anne Woodward, of course, seems excessive, but taken out of context, it's gripping, engaging, and leaves you thirsty for more. Many authors, however, feel differently. Melanie Benjamin, author of The Swans of Fifth Avenue, sees answered prayers as an unfortunate mistake because it was supposedly out of touch with his other work. But his unfinished masterpiece was the Truman Capote he dreamed of being, if not for his own inner demons who had worn him down. Well, that and a good old-fashioned literary scandal. Seems apropos, doesn't it? Who better for it to happen to than the man who loved to gossip?
Thank you for listening to As Long As It Isn't True. This podcast is written, edited, produced, and narrated by Jeffrey Davies. Additional narrations were provided by Sharon Highland. Theme music is credited to Wendy Martini, Elvin Vanguard, and Jules Gaia. A selected bibliography can be found in the episode description. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to tell your friends and follow us on Instagram at LiteraryScandals. Until next time, get cozy with a good book and remember that all literature is gossip. Bye for now.